Hey friends, and welcome to this week's episode of the U-Turn Podcast. This is your host, Ashley Stahl. I'm a counterterrorism professional turned career coach, speaker, and Forbes blogger, and I created the U-Turn Podcast because, let's face it, every now and again, we realize that we're living life on autopilot, and it's time to wake up and make that U-Turn. So prepare to go deep with some of the most transformational people I know, here to help you grow and upgrade your mindset, whether it's in work or love. Be sure to stick around for the end of every episode where I'm going to reflect on the conversation and offer actionable coaching insights to have a real impact on your life. In the meantime, we've opened up access to three free e-courses on uturnpodcast.com. So head on over there if you want to land a new job you love, find your purpose, or launch your dream business. All of these courses are totally free. All you got to do is head on over to uturnpodcast.com. That's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N podcast.com. Now let's get started with this week's guest. Hi, everybody. It's Ash back on U-Turn Podcast, and I'm here with Stephen Gyllenhaal, an all-around magical human being who also happens to be a documentary filmmaker, American film director, and I would say a poet if I don't mind if I do, Stephen. And he is here to talk with us about how to be kind with yourself and how to overcome trauma and all of the different things that he's learned, given that so many of his documentaries he's working on right now have the goal of raising human consciousness and talking about topics that aren't necessarily always discussed but are really, really important. So, Stephen, I could go on forever with a bio on you, whether it's being nominated for Golden Globes, Emmy Awards, whatever have you, but I will leave it there and let your awesomeness speak for itself. Thank you so much for joining me on this. Oh, thank you for that um, intro. The thing I think I would want to focus on is about um, about six years ago, while I was still very much uh, directing movies and, and television, um, I realized that I was more and more interested in um, therapy of some sort or other. I've been in therapy forever. You have to, I think, be in therapy to stay sane in the in the movie and television business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably any any business or anything we do on this planet, I think you need some form of therapy. And I've been doing it pretty much since college, which is about 45 years. And I decided about five, six years ago that I would slowly transition out of movie making into um, being a therapist. So I went back to school. I got my MFT degree, my marriage and family therapy degree over about five years. Graduated last year. And in the process of it, had made a documentary. Documentary. I produced a documentary of my wife called In Utero, um, which is all about the science, the contemporary cutting science involving life from conception until birth, what goes on during that period of time, and how profoundly important it is, because this is where you're really developed, how profoundly important this is throughout one's life. And it was a surprise to both of us. We had decided um, to have a child. Um, this is my second family. Um, and, and my wife is someone who, when she decides to you know, consider having a child, she'll go, well, you know, go out and make a movie about it. So, so in the process of, of making that movie and then distributing it, which has had a very interesting life, and I recommend anyone who's interested in really understanding how they are constructed, both psychologically and physiologically, check out the documentary in utero. But um, while making that and really uncovering how important that period of time was, um, a group of psychological facilitators, you know, some of them therapists in Europe, but some of them practitioners, came to us to say that what we had uncovered in the documentary was what they were learning in their 
work with uh, patients. And that was pretty much in Scandinavia and Germany. And when I began to explore what it was that they were practicing, I became fascinated because by then I was about four and a half years into my own, getting my own degree and realized both because of the, the, the work I was doing and the therapy I've done, this was the most um, effective and intense way of self-examining that I ever run into. And so I decided to train in that along with getting my degree. So about two years ago, I started doing the training for that. And then about nine months ago, feeling because I've done so much therapy and I also by then had my degree and really talked with um, Franz Rupert, who is the, the creator of this form of um, self-examination, and also uh, Marta Thorsheim, who's coming uh, to Los Angeles um, in November. After talking with them, I decided to set up an institute in Los Angeles and start using this. So it was really my my first foray in going from being a, a film and television director to being a facilitator of a you know, really quite radical psychological methodology that that focuses on self-examination. Who are we and where do we come from? Going back to conception, following it through birth, and then into early infancy and toddlerhood, which is the most important developmental time. And the Institute's called the Institute for Identity Development because that's what it explores is how do we develop an identity? How do we change or work with that identity to to make it more capable of functioning in the world given the various traumas that we've all encountered from conception until the present. Oh. So in a nutshell, that's where I'm at. Well, can you imagine, Stephen, if my intro to you, it's it's so interesting because I think that even though so many people are either in therapy or could get extraordinary benefit from it, I know that I have as well. And that that was such a huge piece for me to be able to see my own blind spots and constantly looking for them so that I could help millennials, whether it was through my job offer academy course or whatever it has been that I've created, therapy and coaching has been so important and so healing for me. But it's funny because I think we live in a world where I couldn't have started. I mean, I could, I could technically do anything in the world. I'm a free bird, but to start this interview and say, Stephen Gyllenhaal is here and he's been therapized for the past few decades. And here he is. It's like, there's still something about the social discourse around therapy. What do you think it is that makes it so hard for people or holds people back from wanting to self-evaluate? Well, first of all, I think there is, a, there is a sense that if you go into therapy, you're doing it because there's something wrong with you. Um, secondly, I would, I would say that what I'm working with is not therapy and it's you know as i say to people it's not therapy and it's not a substitute for therapy it's a form of self-examination um it's it's a way of really looking at who you are and i think if you if you approach that as i heard someone say one time that the most beautiful word in the english language is each person's own name that what one likes to hear more than anything else is their own name if you take a moment and just think about it, how lovely it is to hear someone say your name, Ashley, mm -hmm. Stephen, mm -hmm. whatever your name is, it, it is something that really matters. And yet we spend so little time really examining who, who are we? What, what is it to be a human being? And 
Why have we landed in this place at this moment, thinking what we're thinking, wanting what we want, oftentimes getting tangled up in things that we don't want to be tangled up in? Well, why are we here the way we are? And I think that's the most wonderful exploration you can do. You know, what the Greeks said a long, long time ago, an unexamined life is a life not worth living. Mm-hmm. It's a little tough, but I think it's true. I think kind of coming back to the theme I wanted to explore, which is, you know, be gentle on yourself, be kind, don't be tough on yourself. If you don't want to examine yourself, that's fine. You don't, you don't have to. Just live as well as you can. But if there becomes a point when you feel like I'm an organism or a machine or a thing or whatever you want to call yourself before you've examined yourself, that's a little bit lost, the best way to begin to find your bearings is to go, okay, who am I? Who are you? Who are you? Well, you know what's so interesting is that I'm in that period of my life where a lot of friends are getting married. And one of my friends, she recently got married, and she's been a really hardworking entrepreneur and very successful at what she's been doing. But at the first, in the first year of their marriage, her husband said, why don't you reevaluate if you even like what you're doing with your career? And she was so successful at it. She was making such a good impact at it. But I don't think she ever took a moment to even ask herself if she was really enjoying it or what she was getting out of it. And the moment that her husband said to her, well, do you even want to be doing this? And she'd never complained about it. You know, it was just what she was doing, which I think a lot of people have happening. It's just what we're doing. And it triggered so many questions for her. And because he can afford to support both of them, she's actually taken a pause from her business, which everybody in, you know, in her orbit thought was perfectly fine and good. And she didn't crave a pause at all. But because she was simply asked this question, of, hey, what do you want to be doing with your life? And she actually let it land. There are so many different creative things that have been coming out of her about how she wants to spend her time. And so I really, I'm noticing this not just in my own personal life, but in the people around me. And I know that you had sent me some notes just around fight, flight, or freeze and trauma. So I'm curious to learn because I was recently reading a book and it was saying that a lot of our subconscious programming happens up until age 12. Usually by age seven, a lot of our belief systems about the world are set and through to age 12. And I read that a lot of the things that happen to us after that, that kind of influence the way we see the world is trauma. And so I'm curious to kind of learn from you, like what got you interested in trauma and how can we start to look at our own lives and start to identify little spots that might hold a lot of trauma? Because I know that when we hear the word trauma, we might think of something as massive as like a car accident. But I also know that trauma can be much more nuanced and much more of a whisper um, as far as things that happen to us throughout our lives. So I would love to just learn from you on that. Well, I think, I think first of all, you know, you mentioned I was, I was a poet, um, which I am. I've, uh, I love poetry and published a book of poetry, and, and so I'm fascinated by and respectful of words. And the word trauma is a, a loaded word. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think we have to be very careful with it. Um, it, it. It again speaks to what worries me about so much of people examining themselves, which is that somehow there's something wrong with you if you're examining yourself. Um, you know, and, and psychology has a tendency to pathologize. You're schizophrenic, you're depressed, you're anxious, you're, you know, uh, you're bipolar, you're whatever it is. All those terms, to my way of thinking, 
take the person and set them outside of the norm. Mm -hmm. And secondly, I think there is a temptation if you're a practitioner to then, because these things are scary for all of us, mm -hmm. um, to feel better than. And, and so one of the things I've been working really hard to do in my work is really separate from pathologizing any of these things. And trauma can be a word that has an element of pathologizing in it. So the, the one thing I would say is let's go back to when, there's an, when you're an unborn child and you're developing. Um, and, and that starts, you know, from the very beginning, from conception onwards. And at first, you're very, very tiny. It doesn't take very much for a very, very tiny being, like take a plant, for instance, but a mm -hmm. being, mm -hmm. to, be, to be knocked a little off kilter by a very small thing. Mm -hmm. So what science is finding, and this is very based in science, is that, you know, a mother being frightened, very frightened by something, or almost having a car accident, or just nervous in general, or the marriage isn't working, or whatever the various things are, the chemistry that allows that person to feel that, and don't forget, you can't feel anything in your body unless there's a chemical element to it. It doesn't, it doesn't exist in you unless there's a chemistry that's making it take place. Mm. And if, if you're pregnant, that chemistry is going into the to this baby, and that baby is both feeling something very similar because the chemistry is very similar, and it is sort of anxiety or depression or upset or a little bit of fear or whatever. It's going into a very, very tiny organism. It can knock things off kilter. Mm -hmm. and, and what's fascinating, and this is a much longer conversation, though, is that this organism, which I think is very, very healthy, this little baby, responds to that you know, little shock. Mm. In a, in a certain way. So, and when you take the, the words, you know, when you're that size in the womb, you can't fight it. Mm -hmm. you, can't, you can't flee from it. If it's relatively strong, you have to freeze. You have to just take it. And with all the research that's been done about PTSD and trauma, and you can make it much smaller because this is a little tiny being, when someone freezes, think about anything that freezes, it's likely to crack. Mm -hmm. It's very, very, very fragile. And that's exactly what happens. The being, the being takes the, where the trauma has hit, how the trauma has hit, and buries it to protect itself so it can keep going hmm. and keep developing. And there's a lot of evidence that says, you know, if a, if a, if a child developing um, in utero is sort of left in a very simple state, nature gets to do its job fully, does it fully, and the, and the, and the baby comes out pretty much fine. But there are all different things kicking in and around the baby as it's happening. And so things get knocked off kilter. So those are not exactly traumas in a lot of cases. They're just small shocks that have an impact. Mm. Um, now, we live in 20, we live on planet Earth. And um, sometimes. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I'm like, sometimes. I don't know what planet I'm sometimes, on, Stephen. <laughs> sometimes you don't want to. Yeah. Um, and, and that's sort of my point. It's hard. It can be hard living here. You know, it's, yeah. it's, you know, we know how difficult it's been for women. I mean, it's getting clearer and clearer. And it's being articulated more and more. If you're a woman in on planet Earth, you can be knocked around pretty seriously mm -hmm. from the time you're a little girl onwards. And, and that that kind of stuff does impact 
first of all, the baby or what before you, before you're born. I mean, you look at your own parents. What did they go through? The Vietnam War, or in my case, World War Two, or you know, the Kennedy assassination, or any of these things have have impact all the way around all of us. So anyway, you, you then you then are born, and birth can often be difficult, and then you have infancy and childhood. All those things begin to have an impact. Some of it very good. Some of it very good. You learn to develop in certain ways. Some of it not so good. So you want to kind of look at all that stuff mm-hmm. and, and not have it be a mystery. Well, tell me, like, you know, I've heard it, heard it before where, you know, what are your thoughts on a mother who has a baby in her stomach that she doesn't want or in her uterus, really? But does that impact what are your thoughts on the mother's thoughts and how they're impacting the existence or belief system of the baby inside of her i think um look it's 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 um it, it's problematic um i think i think that um there's a lot of evidence that an unwanted child can um, feel it can can feel it, not necessarily the phrase "I'm unwanted," although that does emerge, can emerge, but just there's something really wrong. I'm. This is not an environment in which I'm welcome. Mm-hmm. What am I? Who am I? Um, you know, there's there's two forms of clinical work and research that that are being that I've drawn from, and the work that I'm doing has drawn from, and that is both trauma research and clinical work and bonding research and clinical work. And in fact. The other thing, one of the documentaries that my wife and I have just finished is called The Bond, and it's really all about the mother-child bond and how important it is from conception through birth into, into, you know, into, into adulthood. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have bonded with your mother or a mother's substitute, you have a sense of self. It's like you have a mirror that goes, oh, I exist. Mm, oh, a witness. And, a witness, yeah, and, mm-hmm. and it's, it's either a witness that doesn't like me or doesn't want me, and in the work that I'm doing in the Institute, there are a lot of people whose mothers just weren't sure they wanted them, mm-hmm. and, and the impact is pretty disorienting. Mm-hmm. And, it can, yeah. Well, and I'm curious, you talked about, you know, how in, in, the, in the utero, it's like the baby just has to take it when there's some light form of shock or heavy form of shock. And I know that in your notes, and we kind of spoke that to examine our experience, there has to be a level of feeling safe. Um, And so I would love to hear what that means for you, because I think that safety is an inside job, right? Like nobody can make you feel as safe as what you can make you feel for yourself, I'm guessing is my thought on it, but I'm curious how you're approaching that and what you think that means in the context of somebody who's listening right now who might be thinking, well, shit, I don't think my mom wanted me or I was an accidental pregnancy and I've always carried with me this sense of throughout my life of feeling like I'm a burden or feeling like I'm not supposed to be here. Um, So maybe somebody's just having a breakthrough listening right now. But even so, I think there's a lot of people listening who we don't feel safe in so many areas. Maybe we don't feel emotionally safe in our friendships or in our partnerships or with ourselves. We don't feel safe to share or we don't feel physically safe. I have some friends who are more paranoid than others that something's gonna happen to them out in the world. Um, and so I'm curious, like, what do you think is happening in everybody's consciousness around this concept of safety? Well, I think one of the things that, first I wanna go back one step. Yeah. 
um, and that is um, it's very, very important in this issue of safety not to demonize mothers in any way whatsoever. Of course. It's, it's, it's very, very easy in this work to get caught um, in the inclination to pathologize the mothers. You have to, first of all, number one, you have to put what it is to be a mother, um, not just in 21st century America, but all the way through the history of the human race, where women have been marginalized almost always. You have to put a frame about what it is to be a woman and then put that around mothers. Mothers are expected, by some miracle, to be amazing. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're, you know, just ask any, any mother, young mother more when they're in the middle of all this, they're not amazing. They're hanging on by their fingernails half the time because it's really hard to do this. There is no harder job. It's a hard, hard job. Yeah, it is. Um, well, there's a neutrality. And- there's a neutrality. If a woman gets pregnant and she didn't mean to get pregnant, there's a neutrality to the fact that that wasn't her intention. And there's also a neutrality to the fact that the baby can feel that. It's not... There's no shame, blame, right? It's just what happened. But I think we all carry what happened differently inside of ourselves. And yeah, so I, I see what you're true. saying. I think it's a very interesting and complicated situation to be in, and I find myself working with this now, which is that on the one hand, you don't want to, you, you want to understand why your mother was the way she was. You want to go, okay, look at her mother, look at her grandmother, look at what she grew up with. My gosh, she's done a wonderful job in comparison with that. Look, she didn't know about sex and she got pregnant. Look at all those things. That's something to look at. On the other hand, and that needs to be sort of held held there, sort of in a contradictory way, because the other piece of it is, what did it feel like to be a child with that mother? You know, it's like, and you can be enraged, furious, and, and want to kill her. Mm-hmm. for what she did to you mm-hmm. and as the more you get into this the more you have to be allowed to have those feelings mm-hmm. but again now this is where it begins to become very 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 important for it to be a safe place it needs to be a safe place to allow those feelings out and and you can't do it just by yourself i think you need you know people grew up around the villages mm-hmm. people you know people grew up in very very different ways and we have to find our little village you know we have to find our our, our, our way of being safe. And I don't think we just dive in and do this work without having a somewhat of a support system. But I think it's okay to feel it to a certain degree. You know, it's like, okay, my mother was this way, and my father too. Fathers are an important part in all this. Um, but mothers are of critical importance. And, and that's, I think, in this age of all the things that are going on around women's rights and, and, and women's feelings and what's happened, it is important to see how critical a mother is. Mm-hmm. But then, and in a way, the power she has to affect the next generation. I've gotten a little off subject. No, but no. I just, I just wanted to kind of be attentive to, in no way, you know, pathologizing or demonizing mothers. No. Um, they, they need all the help and protection they can get. Um, but if you're a child now, and you're now an adult, and you're dealing with these anxieties and these problems, and uh, I mean, for instance... There's been a lot of research done around transgenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that which, fascinating, like different generations that carry different traumas in their cells. Is that what you would mean by that? Yeah, yeah, the epigenetics of it. So epigenetics okay. means on top of genetics. And genetics itself, as we've understood it in the mainstream media, generally talks about it, is, is false in that environment chain turns genes on and off. And so, for instance... And this is where a lot of studies have gone on. Holocaust survivors, um, particularly women who were pregnant 
during the Holocaust, the babies in that period of time and the mothers had to turn genes on and off to survive. Mm-hmm. And and there's a lot of research around uh, the, the particular children either in, that survived the Holocaust or during the war epigenetically were reconstructed in utero basically to survive under very stressful circumstances. You could live on very little food. Whatever there's food around, get it. I mean, there's the whole, the whole, there's a lot of studies around that. So the, when the war was over, and these babies were four or five years old, and now they follow them now up into their seventies, you know, and and eighties, and, and since they've died, a, a lot, a lot of them were overweight because they were just designed to eat whenever they could get food. Mm-hmm. Um, as a consequence, way higher statistics of diabetes and heart attack and all those kinds of things. So. So it's, it's, and then as an example of what you were talking about, there are many cases, and this is almost inexplicable still, but if you are, if you are the third generation of a Holocaust survivor, I've known a number of cases um, where they don't, they're not comfortable getting on elevators. They're not comfortable, and it's like, is it because, and I, and I don't know for sure, you know, you know, in the, in the Holocaust, you know, when you were sent into a room where you're going to come out. Yeah. Uh, so that the past history also impacts what is the experience of each of us. But it is not who we are. It's what's happened to us. It's like fears so, that exist on a cellular level through our family family's history. And, you know, it, it makes sense to me, Stephen, because it's the same case with diets. Like if you think about it. If your DNA and your genetics are from an Italian bloodline, you might be able to handle pasta on your stomach better than some people who maybe came from a different ethnicity and that culture didn't eat a lot of pasta. So it happens on a digestive level. Why wouldn't it happen on somewhat of an emotional level that maybe families had certain experiences that influenced the bloodline and the genetics? So this this makes sense to me. And... Um, you know, I, I saw in what you had written me when we were emailing that you said no pain, no gain is a survival strategy, and I also was so curious to ask you about that as well. Yeah, I don't think you really get to the real truth of why you are who you are um, by forcing yourself to get there. You, you have to do it gently. Mm. And I mean, the no pain, no gain thing comes out of, you know, physical exercise. And the older I get, and I've done a lot of exercise over the years, the more I begin to think it's even true physically. Don't cause yourself pain. Mm-hmm. You know, pain is a, a way of telling you, whoa, slow down, you know, don't don't go there. Um, and, and I think the same thing is true with this. If your system is telling you, I can't deal with my family history right now. Yeah. Don't, don't check out your family history right now. Yeah. You well, know? I think a lot of people's systems probably telling them I can't deal with my family right now. And it's, yeah. what a tough thing to swallow. But, you know, when I was getting my master's in spiritual psychology, they were saying, you know, if you look at your Thanksgiving table and you look at every individual there and there's probably something in them that triggers something inside of you, like a frustration or a judgment you have on each person at your table that you're working through with yourself. Your family is just so close to you. And so I think that there's so much here when it comes to not even being able to deal, not just with yourself, but maybe the people around you. I think a lot of people probably feel disconnected from their their family and they may have some sort of experiences with them. So I'm curious, you know, and also, by the way, with your no pain, no gain, 
a lot of people right now are going through that with their career, where they tell themselves, this has to be hard or I'm not going to climb the ladder or I'm not going to become this amazing career person. So I'm curious what you think about that, especially as somebody coming from the inter entertainment industry, which is known, rightfully so, to be a tough path. Hey, U-Turners, so sorry for the quick interruption, but I want to make sure you know that this episode has been brought to you by the Career Clarity Lab, the online course to help you find your career purpose in the workforce and upgrade your confidence. So if you're ready to unlock the best career path for you and you'd like to try a free version of our Clarity course, just head on over to U-TurnPodcast.com slash Clarity. That's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N podcast.com slash Clarity. Now let's get back to this week's episode. Well, I, I would I would take a step back and sort of go to the methodology that I'm using. Yeah, talk um, to me. The major question one wants to ask is, who am I? First of all, just who am I? Who am I really? And the way to get to that, the way to begin to get to that, is ask yourself, what do you want? What What do you want? What do you really want? You know, and, and that's what that's what we do in this work is we do this thing called the sentence of intention in which you write out a word, write, write out a sentence, maybe four or five, six words long. And you then begin to deconstruct that sentence and work with it in a very unconscious way, which we can talk about later if you want to. But that's not the point here. The point is, what do you really want? You're talking about your friend. Did she want this career? What? Mm. Why, what is it that she really wants? Does she, does she want to go, you know, for instance, I know, do I want to just go live in the woods in Vermont? Do I want to just leave all this behind? And, and so I, I, I was in Vermont for a little over a week, for a little more than a week this past week. I love Vermont. I love it. Do I want to live there all the time? No, I kind of like the city. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, it's like figuring out what do you want and start to live that life. Mm-hmm. I, I do think I, I think um, one has to be balanced about it. Yeah, you know? well, you got um, me thinking. I was just thinking about. I don't know if anybody's. I've as a coach, like I don't think I've ever truly answered that question the way you were asking it because. A lot of the times when somebody says, what do you want? As a person in the world, you think, well, my goals are to be the vice president of this or to find the right person to marry me. It's, it's all of these things. But when you really simplify it, it's like, what, what do you want? So in my case, it would be like, I want to feel connected to the people around me and I want to have ease in my career and inspiration. And that's it. It's, so it's now simplicity. put that into five words. Mm, I want to feel connected and inspired. I'm, so, not, I'm not good at math. I think that was five or six words. That's, that's <laughs> fine. That's fine. No, it's just I want to feel connected and inspired. Mm -hmm. You know, what do you want to feel, feel connected to? I feel connected to people. Mm -hmm. And I feel inspired by creating things in business. So, so, there, so then what you want to do, what, what I would begin to do in the work that we're doing in the Institute is start to take that apart on an emotional level hmm. Start, and, and what, what quickly happens in the process, which is when I try to explain the process to people, 
they kind of go, this is insane. So, so it's like the best. So far, I'm just fascinated. I'm like, this is fascinating. (laughs) Well, the best thing to do is to come to one of the workshops. The next best thing to do is go to the website. Yes. Um, You'll be seeing uh, me soon, Stephen. It's like I'm taking over your life. (laughs) Um, And and you and it's it's pretty astonishing what happens um, when what what you do is you get out of your intellectual self. Mm-hmm. Um, and you take those five or six words and you take them apart and you give each person one of those words and you let those people be around you and start to feel what those words mean, sort of deconstruct it for a bit. And what does it bring up? And fast, what happens over and over and over again is pretty quickly what starts to come up is things that happen through your life. And and there, and this is this is a method that came out of don't forget um, this documentary in utero, and the reason they came to us is they said what we find this work does is pretty quickly get back to early infancy, birth, and the time in in the womb. That what you want, I want to be connected and I want to be inspired, has connections to how you developed from within the womb and onwards. Mm-hmm. And and then it starts to become more and more emotional. So for instance, I'll give you an example. Yeah. Um, one of the sentences that comes up relatively often is I want to be rich. Mm-hmm. I, want, I want abundance. I, I, I want to be wealthy. Mm-hmm. And what usually emerges after a while is I want my mother to love me. Mm-hmm. And it's like... It's not quite that simple all the time, but it often is that. I just, and what it really is, I wish my mother had loved me. Mm-hmm. Um, so you 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 get to a place, a very elemental place in the work, and then you work you work out from that. You, then you begin to develop, you know, new strategies. And you be, but you're trying to know yourself. You're trying to see how vulnerable you are, how much you really want. Love. One wants love. Um, you know that that's what really begins to matter. Um, I mean, I know quite a number of billionaires and they're not the happiest people I oh know. yeah i've dated a couple of them and i was like what is going on you are yeah. so unhappy yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and as far as somebody really getting clear with what they want and you're saying and there's certain events in their life that tie to that what are you suggesting that more likely than not those are painful events or could it be is it just as likely that there's a lot of positive <laughs> events that have led me to say, I want to be connected and I want to be inspired? Is it usually my pain that brought me to that conclusion? I think there is quite a bit of pain for people on the pathway to all of these things. It's not just pain. I think I would maybe sort of frame it slightly differently in terms of trying to answer the question. And that is that whatever it is that happened, happened. If you try to hold it down and pretend it didn't happen, that's painful. If you are, if you find a way, and it is not easy, and I find you do need help, and I and I think you need to have people around you almost feeling that pain for you, mm-hmm. which is what this work does to a certain extent. It's it works very well as a group, group you know, where I do one on one, where I take on a lot of the, the the dynamics of pain that are there because stuff is being held down, mm-hmm. and. When it comes up, what you find is is a is a vulnerable person. Yes. And and when that vulnerable person shows up, they are beautiful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Every single time. 
Only every you know, time. I can believe that. Mm-hmm. But, but of course, it's it's hard to stay there in this world. It's hard to stay that way when you're when you're um, in, in business, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that's what's underneath all of this. So that I think the pain is a piece of it, but really more than the pain, there is a human being mm-hmm. in the midst of that. And that human being is is pretty wonderful and innocent and, and, and needy, you our, know, all those yeah. things. Our true nature is just these yeah, loving yeah. beings. And well, now you've got my curiosity, which means that probably everybody's listening. Curiosity peaked. And I know that, you know, there's an entire workshop you have for these systems that you share. I'm curious, where do, where would somebody, because I'm sure somebody's listening and they heard me say, I want to feel connected and inspired. So somebody has something for themselves in mind, and now they're aware that there's some sort of set of life events that have brought them there. Um, could you share like another step or two that somebody could go just to get something out of that awareness of what they really want? What would I do next with that? Well, I think the place that would go next, um, and that worked hard to do this is to go to, is to go to this website and at least just explore it. It's really designed, you know, there, there are, I filmed a number of these works and they're in short and they're, you know they usually take about an hour one of these sessions it's called ID sessions identity development sessions um, um, I've, I, and, and I shot I shot these sessions on in one day in Oslo and there they called IOPT um, uh, and, and it's very this process is the same so you can begin to see wonderful it. where's the it, website it, it's called uh, the Institute for identity development wonderful and, and it's um, easy to to, to find or just just you know just look up my name and it's you, you can track it track it down but I, Institute for Identity Development um, is, is the name of it and there you can begin to get a feel for it and from there you can connect with me and I have someone I'm working with who are relatively new um, if you're in Europe there are uh, this there's some um, there are two institutes there one in Oslo one in Munich but we, I've now set this one up in the United States and yes. we're new so we're expanding I'm trying to do it gently and carefully because as you mentioned earlier I'm also in the middle of a number of documentaries yeah and, you uh, are and that's taking time as well yeah uh, well and tell me you'd mentioned to me that there's two lies that people say one is I'm fine or the other one is I'm really sick can you help me since you're not yeah um, I think those are what's that about because I think a lot of people walking around the world right now they're either kind of operating out of that like I'm fine thank you or I'm really sick can you help Fix me. I'm deficient in some way. Yeah, yeah. I, What's that about? I, well, I think I think the the problem is is that the truth is very nuanced and complicated and brings up a lot of feelings. You know, terror, joy, hope, which can be dashed. <laughs> you know, um, love, um, feeling unloved. I mean, all these feelings. This this whole morass of feelings, which need to sort of slowly be unpacked. The truth does that. To say, I'm fine. I'm totally fine. I can do anything. I can handle anything. That's a lie. You know, um, that's, that's, that's a protection. That's a survival strategy. That's, mm-hmm. I'm going to just make it. The other one is, I'm really sick. I'm really, really a mess. I can't do anything. I'm going to just stay where I am. You look like you've got it all together. Can you help me? Mm-hmm. Um, I've had plenty and, and, of coaching clients come in and be like, I, my life is a mess and yours isn't, so help me out. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's and, and 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 that's not being kind. Neither one is being kind to yourself. One is making you be fake and 
and just sort of make it through the day looking as good as you can. You know, maybe you've got a nice car, maybe you've got a high paying job, maybe you've got you know, the one this, that, that says, whatever. I'm just fine. But yeah, but yeah, you know yeah. what? There's also, I've told people before, I think that positivity is such a wonderful thing, but it also feels like an infection in the personal development industry where it's like, just be positive. And yeah. it's like, wow, that's such a bypassing for us, so many people who are feeling pain. I, I think that. I'm also curious to hear from you, like, uh, at what point are you allowing yourself to feel and at what point are you marinating in your own hell? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think, <laughs> well, I think I mean, in neither case are you really seeing what you are. You're, we are all far more complex than that. It, none of us has, have gotten to this place um, where we are, having survived and not have real survival interesting elements ourselves. And in many cases... The people who are the most damaged, and it, I see it more and more now, you know, schizophrenic or someone who's bipolar or whatever, there's good reason why they're that way. I mean, I'm more and more, it's like, it's cause and effect. You come from a really screwed up family that's lying all the time and there's horrible things going on where they're just dead inside or whatever, um, you know, or semi-dead, you know, whatever it is, you're going to create children who are really a mess. And, you know, there's a lot of family therapy and a lot of family theory that really makes clear that the, that oftentimes the least healthy member of the family, the schizophrenic, for instance, in a family, is actually the most awake. Oh, my God, I totally understand that. The other day I was having all these thoughts in my head and I saw a schizophrenic person crossing the street with a shopping cart. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, are we any different? They are just saying the things that are floating through my head. Yeah, yeah. And that's not to romanticize it either. No. It's... It's it's a it's if you dig into if you look at that identity, what you're going to find is there's a reason for why that's happened that way is that it was a survival strategy. For instance, to be psychotic and to live in a fantasy world, for those people they had to live in a fantasy world to survive when they were little, and then they couldn't get out of it. So then you have to look at that not as as pathology, but as a brilliant strategy for remaining alive. And what that does, and this is the next piece of all of this, which is the most important piece, is it's within the person to heal, not within the practitioner or the therapist. It's, it's, the whole idea is to help that identity get strong enough so it can access the healing energy that allowed it from conception onwards to survive and, you know, and function as this miraculous thing called a human being moves through the world mm -hmm. so 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 that's so so that's the key to it is you look and, and there's so much research to be done and so much re um configuring how we look at all these things all these illnesses so-called illnesses to say these are we have to we have to deconstruct them to see that they're actually forms of a, a very healthy organism working its way to survive as best it can and now let's take that healing energy and move it toward, you know, allowing that person to be who they really are, mm -hmm. you know. Um, you know what this is reminding does me that of? that Yeah. I read a book in my um, spiritual master's program a long time ago called Family Secrets. Have you ever read that, Stephen? I, I know of it. I know of it. I haven't read it. Okay. So anybody listening, if you're wanting to go on a real clusterfuck, awesome deep dive, <laughs> I highly recommend it. 
I read this book and it what the assignment we got was to do a family tree after reading it, but not just a family tree. Instead of tracing the individuals and everybody's links to each other, looking at the individuals on the family tree and asking around in our family of what like what incidences, um, like what dramatic incidences, physical incidences or emotional incidences happen for each individual. Um, and so I would look at my great grandfather and my dad told me that guy, that he had a panic attack and totally quit his job and lost it, um, in his forties. And, um, and then I found out that my grandpa had the same experience and my dad had the same experience. All of it is to say, I even met a woman in my master's program who on one side of her family tree, three sons died in freak accidents within a couple years of the same age of each other, meaning you know, like the great grandmother's uh, son, the grandmother's son, the mother's son, you know, going down the family tree, a bunch of different sons had the same traumas. And so it's so interesting and fascinating to me to see how we might have emotional incidents or physical incidents that seem to be carried throughout family lines. And so I'm kind of curious to go back to this idea of epigenetics. And you were saying we're humans and that the history of the human race itself can be quite traumatic. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are, given that we all come into the world where there are wars and social violence and natural disasters and family skeletons in the closets and family secrets, which hence the name of the book. Um, what, what, what can you share with everybody listening if they're kind of thinking, you know, maybe they grew up in a country where there was a lot more war, or maybe their parents um, had some skeletons in the closet that they only found out about recently. What are your thoughts on that for them to understand how that might impact who they are? Well, I'd say, first of all, in most families that are just trying to survive, you know, you've got a couple of kids, you're barely surviving, making a living. In the house, the plumbing goes, you know, if you even have plumbing, most people do, you know, that are American. Um, you've got a, a, you're having a fight with your boss, your marriage isn't going well. I mean, you know, your three-year-old is, you know, doing whatever, and they got measles that just swept through the family. Whatever it is, just making it through life is a huge undertaking. And, and setting aside family, for a second, just family, but each of you, you know, married or not or having children or not life just is not easy mm -hmm. it's you, you've just you got to get up you got to do your job you got to do whatever it's just not easy so one of the strategies psychological strategies and by the way biological strategy but one of the strategies is when a skeleton emerges when something horrible happens cover it up so you can you can you can continue through the day so in my case, one of the cases, there are a number of things in my family because I've uncovered pretty much most of it now. There was a suicide. My, my grandfather committed suicide. Mm. And it was just covered up. He wow. just died. He just died. And, and in fact, you know, he hung himself in the attic and they, you know, the body, I don't know all the details. I know that two of them found him and cut him down. And, oh, my God. And, 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 and then they had to get him out. And, you know, and, then, and it was like, and then it was just never spoken about again. He just died. Wow. And and um, that goes and under so, the lie of I'm fine. Thank you very much. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And but you see, here's what ha here's what happens. There's a shock that goes through that family. There's a shock in a number of a couple of the family members. And I know the two family members who cut them down, both of whom have died, did not die well mm. um, and, and didn't live well mm -hmm. and, and and never spoke about it ever. Mm. Um, so so 
when there's a when there's a skeleton in a family, nine times out of ten, it's put in the closet, mm-hmm. and it starts to haunt the family, and it never goes away. And it's like it's just it's just so so a child dies, and it haunts the family. Mm. And, and then why does the child the same age later on? And it happens a lot. These patterns happen. I don't know why altogether. Some may be epigenetics. Some of it may just be when the teenager gets to be, you know, 17, when the other teenager died, terror starts to sweep through the family, which is put in the closet and not dealt with. And suddenly there's this sense of horror and terror in the room that no one understands. Mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't know what it is. And, you know, in the next 150, 200 years, I think we're going to come a long way to understand why do these patterns repeat themselves? Yeah, it's fascinating and bizarre to just yeah. hear it. And I'm also just curious, like, why do you think I'm, or, or do you think that talking about it is the best way? Because I think a, a lot of people like I've met some people who I kind of question, like, is talking so for example i used to have a lot of anxiety so the way i would handle myself is to talk about things but really my healing would have probably been not to talk about things because i was almost keeping things alive beyond what i needed to by talking about them Uh, whereas other people they don't talk about something at all and it's a huge healing for them to talk about it so i'm curious like what do you think healing looks like because a lot of people everybody's different and everybody might have their own way of processing pain or loss or skeletons in the closet. Just curious for your feedback on that too. Well, I think the, the important thing is to genuinely process this stuff. Um, that's, that's maybe the better way you just use the word process. And I think let, let's, let's take a look at that word for a minute. I think that's, that's the, that's, that's what you want to try and do is process it. Now, how do you process it? I think we're still learning how to do that. Part of it is talking about it. But talking about it can also be intellectual. And, you know, one of the, one of the problems is with Western culture um, and history is there's always been a separation between mind and body. And, you know, it goes back to religion. You die and you go to heaven you, you know, or hell or wherever you go. Um, and, you know, Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. You know, no, you are, and you think. Mm. But and and it's like and so so much of what goes on goes on in the body. You don't feel anything unless, as I said earlier, there's a chemical interaction going on in your body. Mm-hmm. If you if you can you can think pain, you can say pain, but that's not experiencing pain. Mm-hmm. So the, there is talking is definitely valuable. But it can become an intellectual exercise and actually a defense against letting it really go into your body yes. and feel it and process it. Yes, I think that sometimes people talk to avoid. Like, for example, um, the past few weeks, I unexpectedly, my sister passed away. She. I'm so sorry. Yeah, so sorry. thank you. I don't know if I even mentioned that to you when we no. spoke the other day. Yeah, I mean, this is my first week back. She had two strokes and she passed away. And. I mean, obviously, I let the grief hit me as much as it did. But what was interesting for me was watching my dad because he I know that he's always been chatty. He's always um, been very in being busy and into logistics. He's not been good at being sick. Like if he has the flu, he's trying to work through it. And what I noticed when my sister passed away was how heavily into logistics he was. It was almost like watching him. I was like, wow, he's not really making much time to feel his pain. 
and the pain was so big it would hit him anyway and he would be in tears but most of the day he would be like what what do you want you know we need to do a family meeting to see what the urn is going to say or which everybody needs to agree on an urn and he was just diving into so many logistics and I think that um, him talking is a way for him to avoid is what I was experiencing and watching him um, and so I think a lot of people listening right now, they're probably thinking, yeah, I do kind of avoid it when things feel really heavy. And I know that you have so many systems and processes, but is there something bite-sized that anyone listening right now can take away from all of your wisdom? And there's a lot of it here for them to start to feel, because it, it can be intimidating for somebody who's like, I have never done that before. Well, what am I feeling right now? First of all, tears have just come to my eyes. Mm. And I'm hesitant because I'm not sure this is the place to talk about you. No, I'm open. I'm so open. I know, I know, but I'm saying, I'm saying to you, I think it's a, it's a very bewildering, overwhelming thing to have happened to have lost your sister. Yeah, um, it's huge. And, and to, and I, I think. Something in me says to not talk about it on the air or mm -hmm. in a, that it deserves privacy. Mm. I, I'm just saying it needs a, it needs a process. Mm -hmm. um, and that process is probably not words. Um, and, and I'm, I'm allowing myself to be slightly incoherent because no, it's, go a, ahead. it's an overwhelming thing to, to just sort of hear about. Yeah. I totally I thought I mentioned it to you oddly. I guess I was I just so in it. It was like I assumed everybody knew or something. No, but I think I'm not concerned. Well, ultimately, I'm not concerned about my feelings as much as yours and to use my feelings to sort of be there for you in this Thank you, as Steve. much as I can because that's what we're really here to do as best we can is... To connect. To, is to connect. Mm -hmm. and, and I think I think that words are not enough. Yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm also curious, you talked about privacy, and I love this topic because I'm such an open soul. Like, I don't, I don't feel a lot of fear about showing myself anymore. Um, I think, you know, like having worked in counterterrorism, there was so much privacy in my career path that I'm just like such an open book. It was so counterintuitive for me to be in a career that demanded that level of secrecy from me. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm curious what you think about privacy because you're, you're sharing a lot of genius here on figuring out who you are, processing your emotions, feeling your emotions. Um, and how can people gauge, you know, in this case, it was my case, but how can people gauge who they share their story with, who they process information with? Well, I think that I think that comes back to what we were talking about earlier and what I'm really working on both for myself and for the people I work with, which is, who are you? Mm -hmm. What are you? Let's keep bringing more and more of who you are up. In other words, let's take it out of the unconscious, which is to say it is not conscious, mm -hmm. and let's make it conscious. Let it, let it mix up, let what's unconscious mix up with what is conscious. Don't think about it too much. Just let it come up. And again, these workshops are very much non-intellectual and I think the best explanation is that they are quantum. They, they are best explained about in terms of quantum mechanics, which is a whole other issue, which is the um, disparities being able to interact. Things mm -hmm. that seem utterly contradictory in the Newtonian way of thinking mm -hmm. are, are, can blend together um, and begin to have a dynamic 
um, energy around them. So I think um, I, I think that we we know who to be careful with and not say something to. And we know who to open up to carefully. Mm -hmm. Intuitively, if we're listening to ourselves. If we know ourselves. Mm -hmm. And the better we know ourselves, the more we become a human organism that can navigate through a world of vast confusion, a maze of confusion. Um, people with the best of intentions can be our, our, our most, destructive, um, most destructive elements in our life, um, even, even if they care. You know, I think there's... There's almost nothing more dangerous than someone giving you advice because mm. uh, you don't know why they're giving you advice really unless you've really asked for it mm -hmm. uh, so so i think i think that privacy is important and and self-care is and self-protection is very important around people who are going to hurt you mm -hmm. but how do you really know that how do you, how do you know that someone's going to hurt you when people in your family inadvertently or not, but probably inadvertently, have been hurting you your whole life. You're going to be inclined to go toward people who hurt you um, until you've worked out what really happened in your family. Mm -hmm. Being discerning, you know, it, um, and just to wrap this up, I think for those of you listening, you know, Brene Brown does research on vulnerability, talking about how not everyone has the right to hear your story. Or, or something along that line, you know? Um, I don't know if that language is exact, but what I've been working on honing is my own discernment because the other night I went to dinner with a friend and I've had some really big and exciting aspirations, especially for this podcast because I'm it's such a passion project. I'm having so much fun with this and it's making such an impact. And so I was talking to a girlfriend who's an incredible businesswoman about my aspirations and I noticed that after I shared them with her, for some reason I felt smaller. And I don't know if that was my own mindset, but usually when I share them with people close to me, I feel more expanded. And um, I just noticed, wow, I need to be more aware and more discerning about who I share my aspirations with because the people that I've shared it with that it's worked for me, I feel like I walk away from the conversation wanting to continue doing it, wanting to continue being expansive and pursuing my dreams, whereas other people I share and I feel so much smaller. And so I know that I could go into inquiry and do work on myself and say, why do I feel smaller? Is that about me? Was there something about this connection that didn't feel safe enough for me to share or expansive enough? Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to know, A, just any last words you have, Stephen? You've been so insightful and incredible to talk to, and I already knew that when we last spoke um, at that event where we met. So I'm curious, what do you have to leave everybody with who's listening well, to this? Well, what I, what I, I think the best thing to, to maybe to conclude this is the element of, in terms of the workshops that I do, and in yes, terms of how, please. how does one deconstruct the sentence, um, uh, by giving each person a word and feeling it out. That what quantum theory and quantum mechanics knows and has discovered and really started the turn of the 20th century and has really expanded exponentially since then is that we are not, the universe is not a molecular universe, which is what they felt for a long, long time. It's when you really, really break down molecules and you go to the deepest, deepest level, it is all energy. Everything is energy. And it's a thought that's sort of very hard for people to process, as it used to be very hard, and I think still is for a lot of people, that the world is round and it's circling around the sun. Or the earth is round and it's circling around the sun. So it's all energy. 
we're, we're, we're nothing but energy. And energy, and a lot of it has been explored, particularly a little before Einstein, through Einstein to the present, energy radiates. And energy radiates massively, and there's a whole lot of theory around all of that. Energy radiates, and also energy picks up radiation. So what, in fact, is going on with human beings, given that we are very complex systems of energy radiation and energy pickups? It's sort of like we send out a kind of radio signal, and we pick up radio signal. Yes. So that the way what I have found in this work and what's been discovered is a whole other conversation, but it's that people pick up other people's trauma. People actually pick up details about other people's history without ever having heard or known anything about them or even through words that it's picked up. And I've watched it happen over and over and over again, where a stranger has a word and picks up something about this person that's very deep and important to them. Mm -hmm. um, so what I think no one is really aware of, and a lot of research needs to be done, is that you are picking up what the other person is resonating. They don't have to even say anything. So sometimes when people walk into a room when they're overwhelmed, I think it's because they're picking up all the resonating from all the people around them. And we have no ability to understand this yet. We're just coming into an understanding of quantum mechanics. So, so yes, did this friend of yours have very mixed and complicated feelings about what you were saying? Nothing. Yeah. Well, it was nothing negative that she said. It was energy. Something about, like, I think when I tell people close to me about my aspirations, they're not only supportive and genuinely excited, but they're offering things up. Like, oh, well, do you want to go deeper on that and come up with some ideas? Because I happen to have a lot of friends with incredible business acumen. I mean, not all of them. That's not why I befriend somebody. It's just what's happened in my orbit, you know? And and so most of my girlfriends will say, oh, do you want to brainstorm on that? Maybe I have some ideas. Um, whereas with her, it was like, oh, that's great. And it was just kind of moving on. So I think I just didn't feel seen or like she really picked up how expansive something felt for me, how excited I was about it. But I, I totally agree. Or, or, the, or, the, or the power that you are emanating yeah. terrifies her or disorients yeah. her or bewilders her. That's so and interesting. So, so then you get disoriented without even knowing it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's such a fine line between taking personal responsibility because in the spiritual world, it's like I want to take responsibility for my own feelings of smallness and not blame somebody else for me feeling small. But then I also want to pay attention to the energy I'm surrounding myself with and the people I choose to share with. And I think there's something to be said of just how certain connections bring out different parts of ourselves. That's true. And sometimes people like that though can be like the buddhists talk about it can be your best teacher though in a way yeah of course um so it's 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 interesting and it's complex and what also is fascinating to me is that while i think i used to believe and i think a lot of people believe that we have reached the high point of understanding what a human being is at this point as i have done so much exploration around this and gotten older and all that I'm realizing how little we know and how much there is to learn and how exciting the future is because we're going to learn it. Yeah. Um, even as we go through, you know, some profoundly challenging times right now, I mean, the politics is quite scary around the world, but, but I think we're going to make it and we're going to learn really much more about what human beings are. Yeah. So, it's so exciting. exciting. So exciting. Well, just a last um, line you could drop just to remind everybody where they could find you would be so awesome. This has been so, I feel like I'm on another planet with you right now. <laughs> <laughs> like, I feel like a little alien. Like, I'm like, woo. <laughs> <laughs> 
somewhere else and it's really interesting so thank you so much and yeah just remind us where can we find your information it's so incredible yeah. the, the best place is to go to uh, the website and institute for um the institute for identity development wonderful um, we're based in los angeles and but we're you know totally on the web and you can connect with me through that and also learn a lot about much more about what I've been talking about today. Wonderful. I feel like there's going to be a, a swamp of uh, people showing up from the U-Turn podcast at your workshop, <laughs> including me. So thank you Correct. so, 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 Great. so much. And, and um, I appreciate your time. A pleasure. Totally a pleasure. You take care. Thank you. I am in just such deep reflection after this past episode with Stephen Gyllenhaal. I found him to be incredibly compelling. And after having met him at a speaking engagement, we were both on a panel together. I just found him to be such a sweet soul with so much depth, so much hunger to grow. And I found it to be really profound that he's in his late 60s and he is someone who just had a child and is really just charting his own path in life. And I find his systems and his approach to finding your own identity to be really inspiring, interesting, different, off the wall in a really awesome way. And he's doing deep work in the world. And so one of the, and by the way, those of you who are curious, yes, he is Jake and Maggie Gyllenhaal's father. Uh, if you see a picture of him, you'll notice that they all look so incredibly alike. What a beautiful family. And what a beautiful human being. Um, one of the things that really struck me, though, throughout this episode with him was the concept of epigenetics, how we carry um, different experiences with us in ourselves through our family lineage. That's something that I was taught a lot in my master's in spiritual psychology, that more often than not, we carry in ourselves experiences that our ancestors have had and it creates this these fears that are potentially irrational or um, kind of this PTSD energy around certain experiences like you know why do some people have a fear of heights or some people have an irrational fear they're going to drown in the ocean like all sorts of weird random stuff a lot of the time there might be some level of epigenetics where your family or your ancestral history has some sort of link to those sorts of traumas so I find that to be really, really interesting. But what really stood out to me was him talking about uh, auras and energies and how there's all these energetic systems all around us and that they impact our mood. So I was talking about how I went to dinner the other night with a girlfriend. And for some reason, I was sharing with her my aspirations for this podcast because I've been finding this podcast to be so inspiring for me to do. It's been such a passion project. And so I've been asking a lot of my business girlfriends for their ideas on how I can expand it because I just want to do this all the time. It's so much fun to have these conversations and to hear from you afterwards. And um, I thought it was really interesting that Stephen told me, you know, well, maybe you felt smaller after that conversation because there's something in her energy that wasn't welcoming or rooting for you. And it's so interesting to me because I think a lot of the time in spirituality, in psychology, in therapy, in coaching, we try to take a focus on the client being empowered for their own results, meaning that we don't want somebody to say, I'm upset because of you. We want them to say, I'm upset because of me. 
and look at themselves and figure out what story are they telling themselves? Where are they in a level of victimhood? Or where are they co-creating their situation where they can step into empowerment and no longer blame somebody else for whatever is happening inside of them? And so I've been subscribed to that belief system for myself. Whenever I'm upset, whenever I'm in an off mood, instead of blaming somebody else for it, I try to go into a place of, why am I so upset? What am I doing with myself? Or what am I believing in my mind to create this upset right now? But it really struck me and took me to another direction when he said, you know, other people carry energies and they impact your mood. And maybe the truth of the matter, and I'm I'm no wise owl here. I'm just sitting here with you trying to figure out life. But it really got me questioning the possibility and the reality that a lot of the times maybe we are upset because somebody else's energy is influencing ours. Maybe we are just these bodies of cells roaming around the planet and um, maybe other people's cells and energies impact ours. I think that that's more possible than not. And what this makes me think of about a lot is back when I worked in counterterrorism in Washington, D.C., I remember so many times that I would leave my row house, my little apartment, in such a good mood on the way to the Pentagon. I'd be in my suit. I would have my backpack. I'd even probably have a cupcake from Sprinkles Cupcake because I had a real cupcake snacksident problem all the time when I lived in D.C., And I'd be on my way in this peppy good mood. And every now and again, I would go into the metro. And for some reason, by the time I got out of the metro and into the Pentagon, I noticed that I wasn't in as good of a mood. Like maybe I was irritable or something. And the way, and and this conversation with Stephen really made me reflect back to it. And it made me realize that there's so many energies, so many people in the metro or in public places and it made me kind of question like maybe what happened was that I was in this good little orbit and the people around me maybe there was somebody around me and think about it how many times have you been around somebody that's really agitated or irritated and maybe that brushes up onto you and for some reason you were in a great mood and then for some other reason suddenly you're not in such a great mood but nothing really happened I think that this is really the case of energy rubbing off on you of you know, for lack of a better term, for, of people's auras influencing yours. Um, and if it is the case that our skin, our teeth, our bodies are just a bunch of cells and a bunch of energy, then wouldn't it may be fair to argue that our energy is rubbing off on other people? And if somebody else is thinking um, that they don't want the best for somebody else or you're sitting at dinner and your friend doesn't want the best for you, it would be fair to assume that energetically their cells are in a state of againstness and that that's that you can pick up on that we're such sensitive intelligent emotional beings and we are hardwired for connection that it makes more sense to me than not that you know on those days where you're in a good mood and you you know you go to Starbucks and for some reason you leave and you're suddenly in a bad mood that maybe it's not you. Maybe there's nothing happening inside of you. And maybe it was somebody else's energy or belief system that was affecting their energy that rubbed off on you. I'm so curious to hear what you think about this. I'm in this with you. Hit me up on Instagram. I love connecting with you on the gram at Ashley Stahl. That's A-S-H-L-E-Y-S-T-A-H-L. I'd love to hear what you heard and thought about this episode. I thought it was pretty off the wall, pretty different, but really deep. Uh, And I will probably be attending one of Stephen Gyllenhaal's workshops because now I'm just curious. And I would also love for you to ask yourself the question that he asked me. What are you really here for? What do you really want? 
Because when it comes down to it for me, like, I don't really care about money. What I really want is to feel connected to the people around me. And I don't want to worry about money. And obviously, when you put it out there for what you want, you don't want to be on a negative. So you don't want to say, I don't want to worry. You want to say, I want ease. You want to speak in the affirmative when you're putting it out there for what you want, right? Energetically, that is just going to create more attraction for you for what you want. So for me, when he asked me, what do you really want? What are you here for? I thought, God, like what really lights me up in the world? I I want connection. I want to be connected to you here on the U-Turn podcast. I want to be connected to my friends. Uh, and I want to feel ease around my career, around my business, around my relationships. That's what I'm here for. That's what I really want. What do you really want? Hit me up on the gram. I want to hear. All right. Have a great day. And I can't wait to catch you next week on U-Turn podcast. this week's episode of the U-Turn Podcast. We keep really detailed show notes at U-TurnPodcast.com. So if our guest mentioned a book or a resource that you're interested in, you'll be able to find that there. In the meantime, if you were inspired by this episode, if it made an impact in your life, we would be so grateful if you subscribed and posted a review for us on iTunes. Rumor has it on the street, the more reviews we get, the more subscribes we get, the more we can grow and get our impact out there in the world. In the meantime, I'd love to hear from you at Ashley stall on Instagram. I'm so grateful for connecting and I look forward to next week's episode. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.